Welcome to the CKNW Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, family lawyer Anna Marie Musson talks about the risks involved with giving money to your kids as the bank of mom and dad. Kevin Estrada from the Fraser Valley Angling Guides Association will give us an update on the extraordinary volunteer work his group continues to do in the Fraser Valley flood zone. And Dr. Jack Jedwab, CEO of the Association for Canadian Studies, gives us some of the results from a poll they just conducted asking us about having unvaccinated guests in our homes over the holidays. So let's get started. Here's a a quote from an article in the Financial Post the other day. Helping a child succeed in Canada's suffocatingly tight housing market has to be a good feeling for parents. What better gift could you give a kid than an appreciating asset they can live in that helps build generational wealth? But those good feelings don't typically last when children who receive assistance with their home purchases go through a breakup. Without the proper planning, your child's ex-partner could walk away with a substantial chunk of equity you were happy to help them build before, but no longer feel they're entitled to now, now that they've backed a Hummer over your child's heart. (laughs) This is a great way to set up our our next guest, who's here to talk to us about the pitfalls of becoming uh, the bank of mom and dad. Anna Marie Musson is the founder and managing lawyer at Musson Law in Toronto, a boutique law firm changing the way people divorce. Anna Marie, good morning and welcome. Good morning. It's great to have you with us. Talk to us about the bank of mom and dad, the societal pressure now on a lot of parents to become that, even if they can't necessarily afford to. Well, here's the thing. Parents are really giving their kids a significant amount of money towards the down payment so they can enter this crazy real estate market. Yep. And parents really want to give their kids a leg up and they really want to help them out. And sometimes they're doing it at the cost of their own retirement. And we're also seeing parents actually taking up mortgages on their own home to give their children um, the money to put the down payment on uh, their new uh, purchase. So we're really seeing it coming at all different angles. I know, and and I suppose, and this is why it matters, and this conversation is so important to have. If the garage is so full of money, you don't care, and you give a couple of hundred grand to your kids and go, here you go, and you walk away and don't think twice about it, that's one kind of parent, Anna Marie, but that's a very rare breed in today's real world. Most of us are going to find a way, as you've already indicated, some people are taking out second mortgages on their properties. People are going into debt to help out their children. So what are the what are the risks that all automatically they're exposed to? A, they're responsible for the debt they've now taken out to give to their kids, so they have to repay that. What about the other side of the equation, please? Well, what they don't realize is that when the child or if the child and their spouse break up, that there's no credit for that down payment money. And so the couple breaks up and they share the equity equally after the mortgage. So inevitably, one person in the couple is getting a significant windfall and the other person is losing the equity, almost best case scenario, and sometimes they're even losing the down payment. Right. So it's putting these, the child even further behind the eight ball 
And now the parents are also having to deal with repayments and, um, you know, dealing with how they're going to uh, repay their retirement funds, et cetera. So it's just causing a lot of stress to families that, quite frankly, they don't really need. Yeah, but some parents will come right back at you and say, but we we try to be preemptive about that, uh, Madam Lawyer. Uh, We put Mm -hmm. our son on title and made sure that his wife was not so that 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 person on title, therefore, is the only owner of the property. So we're safe, right? That is one of the biggest misconceptions we see. And I'm inevitably the person who has to bear the bad news when they come into my office uh, on breakup. But that is actually not true. It doesn't matter who is on title. Um, it's not going to protect this down payment when it's considered a matrimonial home. Um, if the couple is cohabitating, it still may not matter. The person who's not on title still can have an interest in that home. And so it's really important that um, parents and the child protect this money. So if, again, if you're the parent with so much money, it really doesn't matter, uh, fine. But most parents aren't that person. So how can a parent do the right thing, lend or make some funds available to Junior and the new Miss or Mrs., uh, and... and, uh, and, and yet protect themselves. What, what, what measures do parents need to be aware of? It's actually a really simple solution, and it's having the couple sign um, a marriage contract, or what a lot of people know as a prenup, okay. if the couple's married or getting married, or a cohabitation agreement if they uh, are not a married couple. And how we really sort of talk to parents and children about this is it's really just another form of insurance. So you have your mortgage insurance, you have your home insurance, and now we have the bank of mom and dad insurance. And it's really that simple. You know, a lot of parents uh, uh, are uh, really reluctant to go there, even though uh, it may even mean that they're, they're, they know that they're uh, unwillingly exposing themselves, but there's something holding them back from having that, what they consider to be extremely awkward conversation, let alone talk to daughter or son about a, a prenup just between the two individuals involved, uh, to say nothing of peripheral involvements like parental money. So we're really having these conversations with our, our clients and, and their children, and it's really sort of just another avenue of having that conversation about money. And when children are entering this um, you know, marriage or these significant relationships, um, having the conversations about money is important. And the what if and what the goals are as a couple. And so we're encouraging parents and children to add this as another element of that conversation. And the interesting thing and what we've been seeing is um, we've really seen a bit of a dynamic shift in terms of of the um, prenup and the negative connotation about it. And the reality is millennials are pretty sophisticated. And they really look at this as, you know, not in the sort of traditional way some of the other generations have seen it, but they just see it as as another way for them to really talk about money, part of their financial toolkit, and it really doesn't have quite the negative sting that it used to have. So the awkwardness may be one-sided in this conversation. Mom and Dad may feel more awkward than Junior in the conversation, who's quite ready to have it. Thank you very much. That's right. And and the partner is usually on board as well. It's actually, at least in our experience, it's pretty rare that we have uh, one person completely offended about um, being asked to sign this document. 
Again, it's how you present the topic and how you have those meaningful conversations. Um, but the reality is they're being well-received. Well, you know, it's such an important conversation to have, Anna-Marie. My producer, uh, Phil, for example, is a young guy uh, looking to buy a home and said, as we were talking about this before the show began, he doesn't know anyone in his personal social circle who does have a, a property that wasn't helped by mom and dad. It's become, especially in places like Vancouver and Toronto, where, where houses are beyond stratospherically stupid, uh, you have to get some kind of assistance. So this is a very important conversation to have this morning. Absolutely. And then the other thing is, just from my perspective, seeing people coming out the other end who don't have the agreement, the stress on the child, the guilt they feel having that money, quote-unquote, lost. Yes. Um, the conflict between the couple, because now we have increased um, legal expenses. We're now trying to sort out how do we you know, protect the bank of mom and dad, and really there's not much I can do, but we've now created more conflict in the breakup. So this idea of really dealing with it at the beginning is actually very helpful to the couple in the event they break up because now we're reducing stress, uh, anxiety. Everyone knows what's expected. Right. And so if the money is a gift, say so. But if it's a loan, also say so and structure it as such. Correct? Uh, Absolutely. We see this a lot too. Uh, People will try to make a gift alone after the fact. It's never going to work. Um, and so even if you classify it as a loan, it still is a good idea to put together uh, a prenup or a cohab agreement, uh, because then we know there's going to be no dispute down the road that someone's going to challenge your loan as being a loan hidden as a gift. All right. So, Anna Marie, final question. Once this once this becomes a sort of I- I- imperative to parents and they realize, man, there's a lot of money at stake and maybe we should sort of get ourselves organized. You have the conversation. At what point does the lawyer become involved? Because some there's going to be need uh, some kind of formal arrangement, correct? Yes. I mean, we do them um, at, in our practice in a collaborative way. So everyone sits down together, right. uh, both lawyers. Um, it, the process is actually um, very respectful. It's not that nasty, two lawyers going at it and trying to enforce rights. So that model is really sort of gone. Uh, we're telling our clients, as soon as you're starting to look for a home, and so even before you put offers on a home, it's best to speak with your lawyer because the process does take a bit of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to make sure that we have all our ducks in a row. The worst case scenario, and, and this has happened to me in the past week, I get a call and say, oh, my daughter's closing in two weeks. I need an agreement. Well, we can't work that fast. And um, the other issue is it causes all sorts of um, potential claims of duress. So, uh, you know, the someone saying I was forced to sign right, this last because minute, of the yeah. closing. Sure. Right. So um, we're also informing our clients and saying it's okay to sign these agreements after the fact. So after closing, after the marriage, we still can put these agreements together and they're just as valid. Okay. So the, 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 the take home from this conversation, by goodness, it's terribly important to be organized. Don't take anything for granted. Correct? Correct. Anna Marie, thanks very much for this. This is a terribly important conversation to have. We do appreciate your taking a few moments to have it with us today. Thank you so much.
Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome our next guest back to the program. Kevin Estrada is back with us. Mr. Estrada is the director of the Fraser Valley Angling Guides Association, who was on with us a couple of weeks ago to talk about what he and his volunteer group of angling guides got up to uh, just basically stepping up when the community basically needed their help in the worst possible way. It's not as though it's been a quiet two weeks either. Kevin Estrada, good morning and welcome back. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about what you've been up to for the last couple of weeks, Kevin, because uh, you've been very, very busy. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, it's like we've we've said from day one, it's been incredible to see the community come together and, and our members and some even non-members in the angling community, uh, you know, joining together to make sure that, you know, we've got what we need and people are getting helped out to, to the best of our ability. So let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, there were one thing that came up uh, uh, that I recall quite vividly from our last conversation, Kevin. I asked you at that time what you and, and your group were doing that morning. How many boats did you have in the water? And you said, well, this morning, and it was about this time, too, you said we've got 15 boats in the water. And at that time, a couple of weeks ago, you were basically eating the cost of uh, the fuel for all of those boats and all of those rescue missions. And it's very safe to point out that for the last couple of years there hasn't exactly been uh, a boom in angling guide demand but the, the pandemic and also that you're not you're not exactly a flush with cash operation and yet as community volunteers you set all that aside you get out there and you do your stuff and you're, you're footing the bill for your own gas at that time you were hoping the government might pick up on that and step up to help you out it's been two weeks how's that going well, thanks to, to you and some others, we did get some uh, donations in to help with some of those, you know, uh, fuel costs at the beginning. Uh, about eight days ago, EMBC, the one thing that they did do was they provided us with some fuel for the boats. Um, so that that was a good recognition. Sure. Um, coming coming from you, obviously. And, um, you know, that's, it's it's definitely helped. I mean, we're, our scope had started out, obviously, as the emergency you know, people were stranded in hope, and we got some um, some guys together to go help with that. But you know, from there, it's just cascaded, right? And as as things have uh, have sort of evolved over the last few weeks, you know, we've gone over and above. And and um, you know, that's one thing that we wish that you know EMBC had done is is use a little bit more of the levers that they've had to put in place to to help because you know our responsibility to the community just kept growing each day that that things went on right and so everything from medical uh you know people on dialysis and had cancer treatments and highways are shut down we were transporting all those people right back and forth food security uh people to homes livestock sandbagging i mean it, it the list goes on right and so um you know it's it's i mean i'm 39 years old this has never happened in my lifetime like this and so it's it's one of those things where it's just it's a proud moment for us but at the same time we can learn a lot well and you know we had yesterday the evacuation order lifted for sumas prairie to the enormous relief of some we also know too though kevin that uh, some of the people living out there uh, don't have much to go home to so what are you uh, again two weeks into this with changing uh, realities going on literally day to day what's occupying your activities what's on the agenda for today for example uh well today we're doing monitoring by barrowtown number three number four roads in parallel um we're under a federal and a provincial permit to uh look for fish there's going to be we know we know there's already you know still stranded 
uh, salmon in areas, but we're going to be looking for sturgeon. Um, that's going to be a big one, uh, you know, as the water recedes to make sure that we get those fish back safely. Uh, there have been some reports, you know, we did have a couple of our members rescue the one behind Hurling Island a week or so ago. Right. Um, and walk that fish two kilometers back to the main channel. So that's going to be as we go forward, uh, you know, one of the issues that, that we're going to, you know, be dealing with and, and try to uh, find as many as we can. Exactly. Now, uh, some of the other things I know that uh, you were involved in, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, with uh, the rescue of a lot of animals. Of course, people are obviously the, the priority, but in, in a farming belt like the Fraser Valley, uh, a staggering loss of animals. And I know that you've been yep. involved in, in getting food to animals who have been essentially stranded on a little spots of green in the middle of all of that water. Yeah. And, and so is that still going on? Uh, we're not primarily doing that. So we did a lot of those rescues and we did bring food, but, uh, you know, the whole community did, right. Sure. That was a community effort to help. So, you know, it's not something primarily we were doing, um, you know, and, and you're right. Like the evacuation order has been lifted. Uh, you know, part of the sad part for us is that we've been on the ground and so we've seen what's going on. We see the heartbreak and the loss and yeah. sometimes when highways get opened and things get lifted, you know, people forget, right? And, and you know, personally, I know I can speak for, for everybody that's been on the ground here is that we're hoping that, you know, with the lack of, you know, initiative and and uh, and support from, from the province on getting this going that, you know, maybe they can make it up with helping a lot of these people that have, have lost everything, really. So let's talk a little bit also about the other sorts of work that are going on. And, and you did mention, for example, people who are, uh, who are in need of medical treatment or uh, those sorts of things uh, who have been cut off. That's been a huge priority for you, getting people to their various doctor's appointments and so on. Is that still going on? Yeah, well, it did as of a couple of days ago when the highway uh, reopened. Um, people were able to get uh, quickly to uh, to Abbotsford, was which was one of the main keys, sure. right? And so we had that issue from day one. We yesterday we had out uh, uh, the mayor Chilliwack, Ken Popoff here, and uh, and two council members, and you know that was one of his big things, right? He's this is his obviously his first you know, emergency to deal with. And one of the big ones was that people were calling in saying, we've got to get to dialysis treatments, sure. cancer treatments and on and on. And, and, you know, we just, we're not set up and like everybody can point, you know, fingers and, uh, and play, you know, that sort of game. But we just want to make sure that, you know, we can be part of the process going forward on how to best respond. We can work with the cities and the province to do that. Um, we're set up pretty well with forest fires and other disasters, but, uh, but this one, you know, we weren't prepared for and, um, and we got to make sure that we make that better because people's lives are at stake. No question about it. And Kevin, there's a lot of a lot of uh, pointing of fingers and all the rest of it uh, going on right now, unnecessarily. But at the end of the day, when all of this is finally behind us, we are going to have those analysis and those retrospective uh, look, uh, look backs at what happened. And I think what you're talking about this morning is and that that emergency preparedness plan that clearly wasn't there will be and in the future and you're going to be very happy to participate in the preparation of that plan aren't you well i think we're uniquely positioned right i mean when you have a flood going on you need boats you need qualified professionals to run those boats and you have to have a fleet of varying sizes of boats yep. so uh unless the you know the province or the federal government is ready to 
you know, to spend that kind of money and have people training every week until the next one, you know, you know, we're positioned to help and we hope that we can, you know, be part of that, uh, the future preparation for our community, for sure. Can't, can't let you go without acknowledging uh, the, the story that we all saw on TV. You were talking about uh, the work you're doing with fish. And there yep. you were, and this is something you do for a living uh, as the Fraser Valley Angling Guides. But you, because you go out there and you take people from all over the world uh, on the Fraser River looking for sturgeon. You found a giant the other day, didn't you? Yeah, well, we had two members going uh uh, we were actually doing debris collection, right? So that was one of the days where we had 12-plus boats out um, just taking up propane tanks and plastic and garbage, doing everything we could. And sure. uh, we got a call in um, that was, there was a stranded sturgeon behind Hurling Island, and uh, Tyler Buck and Jay Gibson, two members, uh, were in the area. And so they went up there, found the fish, and uh, walked it back, you know, two kilometers to the main channel. So, I mean, it's, it's one of those great stories in a moment of, you know, uh, you know, a disaster and an emergency that, you know, that we can kind of all look at and go, you know, that's uh, it's just kind of a nice cherry on top. Well, exactly. And you got to have a moment or two like that along the way. It's what keeps you going, right? Well, exactly, right. And, and a lot of our guides have been through a lot, right? There's a lot of emotion that has gone on here in the, the long days. And, um, you know, it's been a hard couple of years for us, you know, just just the way it's been with the pandemic. Sure. And so, um you know, this is definitely something as an organization we'll look back on in 10 or 15, 20 years and just say, you know, it was incredible the amount of different tasks we completed, how we came together so quickly and, and worked uh, in a coordinated effort um, to help those around us. And uh, and it's it's for sure, it's a definitely a proud moment for myself. Well, and it's, so it should be. Stepping up when the community needs you most is exactly what, uh, what, what we're supposed to be all about. And you and everyone involved with the Fraser Valley Angling Guides Association have certainly shown that to be very true. What's the website, Kevin? By the way, if anybody listening wants to have a look at what you're up to. SVAGA.com. And, um, you know, we're, we're pretty active on social media guides association. You can find us on there. And, uh, and yeah, you know, I just want to say thank you also to you and, and many others that have, that have highlighted what's going on. And I think that these people that have lost a lot really want to, we want to keep, you know, telling the story and, and giving updates on what's going on because they're going to need some long-term help. And, um, you know, you know, two of every three cups of milk that you drink come from right in this area, right, uh, in British Columbia. And so this is going to be a hit to, to our food supply. And, and we want to get these farmers back on their on their feet and make sure that we've uh, we've done right by, by the wrong. Well, I'm sure that they, uh, they will definitely back us up when saying, fantastic work, guys. Thanks very much. FVAGA.com is the Fraser Valley Angling Guides Association website. They're very active on social media. Have a look and give them a, a like and a thumbs up. Kevin Estrada, great to speak to you again. Thanks for giving us a few moments. Thanks for having me. With Christmas fast approaching and family dinners and possibly a workplace party or two, a majority of Canadians are unwilling to let an unvaccinated friend or family member into their homes. This according to a new poll from Leger. The poll was commissioned by the Association for Canadian Studies. It's a pleasure to welcome the CEO of the association, Dr. Jack Jedwab, to the program this morning. Dr. Jack, good morning. Good to have you back with us, sir. Good morning, Sterling. My pleasure. So let's talk about this. Uh, first of all, how long ago was the poll commissioned, and what was the reason for it? Just a pure curiosity question this year, Jack? 
the poll was uh, commissioned between November, well, it was the fieldwork was done between November 19th and November 21st. That's so quite recent. Mm-hmm. As far as uh, the curiosity issue, the polling you know, purpose is really a function of a fair bit of work we're doing on uh, the social and economic impacts of COVID-19 and have been for about 18 months now, almost since the outset of the contagion, where uh, we're trying to track Canadians' attitudes on a variety of issues. And, and quite recently, we've been looking at issues around uh, vaccine uptake and the sort of uh, attitudinal side and behavioral side of, of the whole vaccinated uh, uh, vaccine issue and the relations between vaccinated and unvaccinated. Persons. So as you've been following this as closely as clearly you have, Jack, uh, it, then the outcome of this poll, the the fact that, what is it, uh, 57% of us say no thanks to an unvaccinated friend or, or family member in the home uh, over the Christmas holidays, that finding isn't surprising to you then? No, it's not surprising at all. In fact, in uh, BC, it's at uh, 70%. It's uh, almost 10 points higher than anywhere else in the country. Uh, and when you're looking at previous polling we've done, uh, there's a fair bit of concern and, and a high level of, of mistrust on the part of uh, persons that are vaccinated towards people that are unvaccinated. You know, given that the vast majority of people are vaccinated, I don't think even that particular outcome as things have sort of evolved over time is, is altogether surprising given, you know, uh, the high level of importance that Uh, officials across the board have attributed to getting vaccinated. Does the fact that uh, British Columbia has as high a vaccination record as we do factor into the higher than average approval rate for not letting unvaxxed people into our homes make sense to you? It's difficult to to suggest that that's the rationale for it, the high vaccination rate, because here in Quebec, for example, where I am, we have a very high vaccination rate as well. And and we're not as, well, 55% of Quebecers are also saying they won't let someone unvaxxed into their homes over the holidays, uh, not 70, though. Uh, so I don't know that it's related to uh, as much to high rates of vaccination. It is a combination of that and anxiety or concern uh, around uh, the potential spread of, of the virus still. Ah, okay, so I'm curious also in terms of demographics and response. For example, are older people thought uh, to be more uh, vulnerable to any uh, mutations? And we're looking at Omicron this weekend, Jack, or perhaps families with children. Again, another vulnerable segment. Do their responses differ from the sort of mainstream responses? Uh, yeah, persons over 55, it's at 76% uh, that uh, would not uh, allow someone into their homes uh, uh, during the uh, holiday period. Uh, and uh, similarly would not go to events where they believe there are people that might not be vaccinated. It's sort of in the low 50s for the uh, younger cohorts. Uh, so, But still a majority of the younger cohorts that feel that way. The big difference that we're noticing in the polling is between persons with uh, uh uh, children and persons without children. Okay. Persons without children, and that's where you've got, uh, I suspect, uh, a disproportionate number of people in those upper cohorts uh, are less likely to allow someone if their homes is not vaccinated, but persons with children are a bit more likely to do so. Uh, still, you know, a uh, high level of, of resistance to doing it, but... Uh, not as high as people without children. So. Well, uh, I'm reading a story about the poll, uh, the subheader to the story, as the holidays approach, there will be, quote, a lot of tension out there when it comes to social interaction between people who are unvaccinated and those who are vaccinated. That's my next question. I doubt that you got to this in the poll, but Jack, this is going to produce, well, shall we say hundreds, if not thousands of indescribably awkward conversations in the days and weeks ahead, isn't it? Yeah, I would think so, because as much as uh, we've got sort of up 
upwards of 80%, depending on whether you look at 80, 18 and over or not 18 over of the population is vaccinated, pretty much across Canada with some variation. Right. Uh, in terms of point, a few points here or there. Uh, there when, I, when we do the polling asking Canadians whether they know someone who, uh, within their family or French network, that isn't vaccinated, we get sort of a 75% uh, positive on that uh, question. So that, you know, when you've got sort of 10 to 15% of the population that's not vaccinated, that's still going to be 3 million, 4 million people who are not vaccinated. So it's not surprising that in our network, we're going to know someone who isn't vaccinated, whether it's a cousin or a, or, or, or could be a, could be a sibling or, uh, or, other, or, or a colleague. And do people, so, in, do, do they indicate in the polling in their responses that those conversations are even taking place, Jack? We've actually done polling like that as well. And we also have insight into that. And in that regard, there are a fair number of people having these conversations, which they do say in the polling that are often sort of uh, heated conversations they're having between, that is to say, people vaccinated and people are not vaccinated. Right. Uh, heated, I think, is probably an understatement. I think awkward is perhaps even more more appropriate because yeah, even though the even though the emotions play out and, and probably very quickly because it's such a, a hypersensitive time of the year, I mean, Christmas for crying out loud, Jack. Uh, and and yet mm-hmm. uh, there's there's this sense of survival that really dominates, doesn't it? No, I agree. And, and I think in, in both sides in some way, perhaps paradoxically, because a lot of the people who aren't vaccinated uh, at this point, especially, have really dug in on the issue and mm-hmm. feel very emotional about the idea of getting uh, vaccinated in terms of the degree to which they resist doing so. There seems to be a lot of emotion about that, a high level of fear. And so it's very hard to persuade people at this point who haven't gotten vaccinated to do so. Uh, and so I think that also contributes to the tension. So the tension is not one way. It's not sort of uh, the vaccinated person who's very tense and, and very deliberate in the conversations they're having. I think you're getting a fair bit of pushback from people who aren't vaccinated. No question about it. Uh, Jack, where can our listeners find this poll? Where's the Association for Canadian Studies website with this information on it, please? So ideally, if it's not up yet, it will be Monday at uh, www.acs-aec.ca. And we run something called the COVID-19 Social Impacts Network, uh, which is a network of researchers and policymakers and civil society representatives that gather every couple of weeks. And so we have a lot of data on that site as well, which is connected to our ACS. It's a great website. And friends, if you missed the address, just Google Association for Canadian Studies. It's a worthwhile stop in your journey on what could be an indoorsy kind of snowy day. Dr. Jack Jedwab, thanks so much for joining us this morning. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.